Good morning. This is the 3CR Garden Show, and I'm Virginia Haywood. In the studio, there is myself and Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, who has grown butterflies, food for butterflies in the zoo, propagated in various nurseries, and is now a lecturer in Hort. Myself, Virginia Haywood, who is part of this team, a guide at the Botanic Gardens, on the Committee of Plant Trust, which conserves, tries to preserve garden plants and has a four-acre garden in the Yarra Valley. And on the panel, we have two Horties, both from the Botanic Gardens. John Arnott, ex-Geelong Botanic Garden, ex-The-Zoo, and now at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. And Tex Moon, who's at the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Gardens, who also worked at the Zoo and previously at Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne. Good morning, John. Hey, Virginia. How are you going this morning? Am I coming through okay? Yes, you are, although we Thanks. might need a bit more mic. Great. Well, isn't, it, isn't it interesting that uh, Chloe, Tex, John, Virginia have all had an association with the Royal Botanic Garden of Melbourne? Yes. And three out of the four have had an association with the Melbourne Zoo. That's it. Yes. Yep. Yes, I, I feel like I must go and do something. I should go and volunteer at the zoo immediately <laughs> yes. just to get in the... <laughs> In the in the zone, <laughs> and good morning, Tex. Hello, uh, how are you going? Yes, Virginia? now we can hear you clearly, Tex. That's excellent. We Very are, good. of course, still on Zoom, garden listeners, because we we can't. Although we've opened up, the studio is so small, and the air is on, with only one door, no windows, so we can't get that airflow. So, unfortunately, we're going to have to stay on Zoom for at least another month, maybe a bit longer. Um, which is why Chloe's in the studio with me, because the technology can defeat us quite easily. <laughs> However, we seem to be um, managing. So, <laughs> good morning to you all. Now, what have you, what have you be, two been doing recently? Oh, John? Um, well, it's full spring, isn't it? It's, it's you know, this is a, a, a really busy time for horticulturists, a busy time in gardens, a great time for for flowering um you know the australian garden is flowering um uh magnificently at the moment it's um just it's a a, a wall it's just full of wildflowers um sort of peak flowering i'd i'd, I'd say at the cranbourne gardens and the karoon bowl must be doing its thing checks yeah likewise really we're, we're banging the uh rhododendron season the the karoon azaleas have sort of just finishing off they've Yes, they're, they're just past their best, um, but rhododendrons out everywhere you look and will continue oh, for the next month or more. The Karoon Bowl could be, could be um, promoted as, you know, being able to be seen from the moon. <laughs> just about, I reckon, at this time of year, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a pretty uh, magnificent display. I mean, uh, there's not, well, there's only probably a few places in Australia where you can go and see that sort of mass planting of, of azaleas and karoom azaleas, and it is just a show of pinks and whites come come now, October. Now, Tex, tell people where your garden is. So I'm at the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Garden, which is I'm actually on site today because I'm working, and so I'm tucked away in the office. But the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Garden, we're up in Alinda in Dandenong Ranges, obviously, so just about 50 k's east of of Melbourne and um, we're well we're not quite in the clouds today but we're it's certainly overcast and a bit chilly up here this morning the office is freezing <laughs> how long's the because it used 
the garden's been there for a long time. Isn't it? it was 1950s. Yep. Uh, 1960 was when oh. when it started. Yep. And but the, it wasn't. And the cool. land was a gift from the government. Yeah, so it was the the, the Australian Rhododendron Society um, were were the ones who started. They lobbied the the government at the time and um, got this piece of land. Uh, wasn't quite as big as what it is now, but they got a piece of land and it was specifically dedicated to the to the um, display of ornamental horticulture and specifically for rhododendrons. Um, so the Rhodey Society were at that point an offshoot from the Fernie Creek Hort Society. Okay. And um, yeah, that's where it all started and started in 1960 here. And then I think in, was it 61 or 62, a fire went through and they also, they had to start again. But um, but then start again with a bit of a, a cleaner blank canvas landscape. So, so yeah, we, we have, a, we, we owe a lot to the Australian Rhododendron Society and, and they're still a major player up here. So they're, they're they volunteer out of here for every week, but We've been missing them a lot over the last the last eighteen months. Um, so hopefully welcoming them back in the and, very close fu- future. So yeah. And let me point something quite odd out to the listeners. I'm in Seville, which is in the Yarra Valley, which effectively is at the back of the Dandenong. So I'm maybe a fifteen minute drive away from Tex, and for some reason, best known to the government, the whole of the Yarra valley and the Dandenong ranges stretching all the way up into bits where there is no reception for sat navs and phones is all part of Melbourne. It's so metro. Yep. although we would consider ourselves to be the region or the country, I mean I have no gas, I have no sewerage, I have no running water, it doesn't look like Melbourne to me when I'm at my place, but luckily... <laughs> We are part of the Greater Melbourne, so you can now visit the Dandenongs and you can visit Tex at the Dandenong Botanic Gardens, which is absolutely wonderful. And, yes. And it does mean that we, the, the Open Gardens Victoria have, have started opening gardens and there are going to be two gardens open in the Yarra Valley. Uh, the 6th and 7th of November, there's going to be two gardens Bentwood and Ridgefield open in Gruyere. And the last weekend of November, there will be two gardens open, which will be mine in Seville and another one called Banksia Bend. And these are all with Open Gardens Victoria. So if you want to find out more, go to info at opengardensvic.org.au. And then there are also some gardens coming up in the regions the 30th and 31st of October, which is nice and soon, there's a garden open, the Presbytery in Clunes. And then the 6th and 7th of November, there are two gardens open in Mafra. And both of these are with opengardensvic.org.au. And excitingly, the 6th and 7th of November, Yay District is having their open garden which I haven't been to for a few years, but whenever I've gone, it's been absolutely brilliant. They've got 11 gardens open, uh, both in Ye and in the area around. It's $35 for a two-day um, visit, and you can find out about that at www.yearrotary. It is. It's but it's only one R. Y E A R O T A R Y. Yay, Rotary. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning, Jean. 
I wanted to put the R onto you. Yeah, you did. You tried so hard to do that. (laughs) Exactly. Aren't I silly? Really, that was Chloe. (laughs) Yayrotary.org.au. So that's 11 gardens. So the 6th and 7th of November, you are absolutely flooded with choice. Oh, no, you're not. If you're in the in the regions, you can go to Yay, and if you're in Melbourne, you can go to the two in the Yarra Valley, but no crossing over, of course. And the other problem, of course, you must be double vaccinated to go to any of these gardens. That is just the rules, with very good reason, I'd say. Yes, maybe hopefully by... Oh, maybe not the 6th of November, but, yeah, maybe later in November we should be able yeah, to... Go to the regions. Go to the regions, yes. yes. So, and yeah. well, if we can go to the regions. I'll be off to Yay District. It's, oh, my goodness. I, I went there one time and they had a, about five of the gardens all had furcreas in flower. Now, the furcrea has a flower that is, oh, 15, 20 foot high. Yeah. It only flowers once. And one garden had planted all its furcreas on a hill. So you were standing below the plant looking up at this and it was 20 foot into the air. It was the most extraordinary thing. And, of course, they're monocarpic and they die after they flower. They're like, furcrea is like a, an agave and comes from agave, the West Indies yeah. and that sort of area. It was so dramatic. Um, Virginia, you, you, you're mentioning the, the Yarra Valley and... I think it's the whole of the Shire is in metropolitan Melbourne. Mm. So yep. that means in Melbourne you can go from Mount Donabuang with cool temperate rainforest, Nothophagus forest. Yep. Then incrementally, um, you, you, I don't know what's the divide line where the basalt plain comes through the Plenty River. And then I'm, you know, I'm thinking that Melton is is probably in metropolitan Melbourne as well. Yeah, Mel- or, Melton or is. Like an island. Like yep. You know, so you go. You can go from I don't know, five hundred and fifty on a good year rainfall, um, treeless plains, to ancient, cool, temperate rainforests, and that's all in within the flora of Melbourne. And, uh, excuse me, there's my puppy. Um, and, it, and it makes uh, Melbourne, the, the Melbourne region, just incredibly biodiverse. Mm. You know, if you had yeah. all those increments from grasslands, treeless plains through to cool temperate rainforest, I mean, some of the tallest flowering plants on planet Earth. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, and according to David Attenborough... Yeah, well said, John. According to David Attenborough, actually the tallest tree on Earth, the only reason it's not the tallest tree on Earth is because when the whiteys arrived, they chopped them, the big, really big ones down and they chopped them down to measure them. That was clever, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> It was, it, there's a tree in South Gippsland that was chopped down to be measured at 135 metres. Oh, um, uh, goodness. Wow. But there is a, there is a, there's a, a thought that within the next decade, yeah. Australia will, mm. unless fire goes through these 120-year-old uh, ash forests, but there is a thought that Australia will again have the tallest organisms on planet Earth with a mountain ash. There was a real push when the Tassie bushfires were on in Black Summer to save yep. those older centurion trees in yep. that yep. area. So I think they're still standing, those ones. Yeah, I hope so. But yeah, I I, so. I um I love that juxtaposition of all the different ecosystems in Melbourne. And I I mean in a in a non pandemic world, I'd take students to 
the Dandenong Ranges, and we did that earlier on this year. Tex, we came up and saw you guys, yep. and we had a great day up in the Dandenongs where you get, what, an average of 1,500 mil of rainfall a year? And yeah, then probably we- a little bit less than that, but about yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Over, over 100, over 1,000 mil, yeah? Yep, yep. And then a few weeks later, we took them over to Melton Botanic Gardens, like the ends of the spectrum, um, just to try to get that that process, that thought process going in students and um, they were a little bit blown away. They, they just couldn't believe the, well, the the diversity in the ecosystems that we have within the space of 100 k's. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's totally wonderful. And, and our botanic gardens. I mean, when you, you mentioned Melton and, and Dandenong and, of course, the two RBGs connected with um, Melbourne and Cranbourne mm. are two of the best botanic gardens in the world. Melbourne is regularly put in the top five in the world. Cranbourne, of course, just on design, won best new garden in the world. Mm. So we're very lucky in Melbourne with what, mm. we, what we have. And oh, I think absolutely. of the open gardens that we have in Melbourne, we probably have some of the best in Australia. We do have, although we don't quite have that same tradition as the Brits do of, of you know, madly growing plants. Mm-hmm. After all, they spent the whole colonial era steering, stealing plants from the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> then if you throw in the St Kilda Botanic Gardens, the Williamstown Botanic Garden, Maranoa, Kawara, yeah. uh, on, on at risk here of, of leaving a few important gardens out. But, but you know, an in, incredible diversity of gardens just within the mm. metropolitan Melbourne, which are all accessible at the moment. Mm. So... And um, George Pentland is another Pentland. one that Dan that's, that's in the mix. We, yeah, we we really are flushed. In a, I mean, a state Victoria. I mean, we got we are a very green garden state. But yeah, when you sort of put it in the context of metropolitan Melbourne, it's pretty incredible, really. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, Keilor's got a little. Um, yeah, they've, they've, they've got a botanic garden. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to mute. Sorry. <laughs> Push the mute button on the dog, John. Uh, I love it when you're listening to. Um, Fran on Radio National in the mornings, her dog regularly joins in. (laughs) (laughs) It's a world we live in now. And if the best radio shows in Australia, i.e. some of those ABC ones, if they have dogs, then Mm. it's okay for us to have dogs, I think. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Happens to all the professionals. I guess the other thing when you consider that diversity of physical environments is that plants are going to do very, very different things. Um, in in one set of conditions than than the other, um, you know. So it, it 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 kind of annoys me a little bit when you go to um, big box garden centres that it, it's often the same suite of plants in Melton. It only annoys um, you a little bit, it... John. Just a little bit. <laughs> it enrages it me. me. Bit, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm turning into a grumpy old man, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> what does that make me? Because it, it it's infuriating. You see the same plants in the big box hardware stores and garden shops in Brisbane as you do in Melbourne. Oh God, it's even worse. It's a it's a it's a, 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 a nationwide thing. Yep. And I, yeah. Craig from Gentiana Gardens, which is Gentiana Nursery, which is another Olinda important thing. Yep. And he is doing a lot of mail order to survive. You know, he's he's gone online and he's regularly texting through or emailing people in Brisbane saying, no, you cannot buy that plant off yeah. my online because it won't even grow in the Yarra, Yarra Valley, much less in Brisbane. 
you know, people people think that they can just buy anything and tr- well, they can buy anything and try it, but he at least yeah. warns them that it'll die. Which it's, I... it's such an important point, though, isn't it? That you know, when you have the, what you're talking about, these big superstores where the mo is all about bulk buying capacity to be able to do the prices that they do, but you do lose that that personal individual kind of um, thing that you get from yeah going to small well, nurseries, I... going to small hardware stores that can mm. things like that. Well, we that don't. They can we actually... hardly have any small hardware stores that's right. anymore. Yeah, it's... yeah. And I right. go to Craig and I say, "Oh, that's wonderful, Craig. Oh, I might, I might have that." And he says, "No, no." <laughs> and I don't even, I don't even have to interpret it. Sales with me too. <laughs> <laughs> Won't work. <laughs> I'm not going to let you. Yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. which I think. It, I mean, I think that is a nurseryman's responsibility is to tell you if you're trying to grow something that's inappropriate. You know, Jane Jane from Tonkin Bulbs was saying that she's been, you know, gets all these messages from people. Why why don't my peonies flower? Where are you, Frankston? Question answered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that we can't just grow everything everywhere. No, and 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 this, this diversity of climate. Um, uh, but then there's diversity of soil types. You mentioned Frankston mm. on these grey hydrophobic sands. You know, I'm, if we just think about our respective gardens, I'm, we, I guarantee that we're all four of us are gardening in very different <laughs> soil conditions. Mm. Yep. Uh, Tex, you've got mountain red lime. Yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. Volcanic, yeah. Clay loam so- soils that, that just grow... Anything. Everything well. Really, <laughs> um, and they're unbelievable soils. They've got the great water hole, that great combination of water holding capacity, but really free draining at the same time. So, so it's yeah, we we are very lucky to be to be gardening with what we have up here. And those topsoils that you have are super deep too. Yeah, exactly. Well, except where you got rock. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of times where you put a shovel in the ground and find a find a big rock shelf. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, we. We are very lucky up here with our soils. So. And Virginia, you're on the you're on the same soil, but a very different. I'm on the, I'm on the same be. soil, but I am much hotter. I'm on top of a ridge, yep. so I have the most stunning view. And when I have my garden open, I really don't have to worry about how good my gardening is, really, because the view <laughs> is just superlative. And people just walk around with their their eyes in the air, looking at the view, except for the real. Um, Forty people who go around and look find all those little plants that are really rare, you know. It's a real distinction. But I have that wonderful red soil. And when I plant, my question is north wind. I never worry about whether it should be in the sun or not in the sun. My question is, can you take the northwest wind? And if you can't take the northwest wind, that is, you know, that's my first question. Because I'm being on top of the ridge... Yep, the whole of summer. And, you know, when they, they always say the, the rule is that you meant, the green rule is you meant to build your houses facing north. My house faces east. And I am so pleased because yeah. the whole of the summer I can be on the east of my house, which is where I sit when I'm outside, and I'm saved from that northwest wind. If I, was, if I faced north and I was sitting out to the north, I wouldn't go outside all summer. You can pull next year. You know, the, that wind, that north wind, as a child, I remember southerlies, but I hardly ever have southerlies. And whenever I have an easterly, I know that lots and lots of trees are going to fall down because they're yep. rare as well. well. That was the big event that happened for yeah. a few months ago. That was a big easterly. June. June, yeah. Was yeah. it June? Wow. 
Was it that long ago? Yeah, mm. God, yeah I think it was the, it was the 9th or 10th of June. still suffering from it, yeah. yes. Incredibly, mm. yeah. And, I went, and Chloe, I'm, I'm tipping you're on clay? Yes, yeah. yeah. Some sort of alluvial. Tell people where you are, Chloe. I'm in, um, I'm in East Ringwood uh, near a, probably about a few hundred metres up from the Torella Creek, well, which is now oh, yeah. essentially a drain. So there's a little bit alluvial. I'm at the bottom of a hill. Um, so good soil, but needs a little. It's a little bit nutrient deprived. I always have to find I have to add compost. But okay. Craig Craig um, has planted lots of his plants out on the the verge, as they seem to now call it, and yep. he has got the most extraordinary soil there. And it is just it wasn't. It is just twenty or thirty years of compost, mm. and it has just rotted down over that 20 or 30 years and turned into the most fabulous soil and this is the thing if you add if you add that mulch and mulch and mulch and mulch you do change your soil and you do improve it i mean that's the point of a forest isn't it dropping all those leaves yep. down so they can rot down craig was bragging about his soil last time we were on with him weren't we <laughs> wasn't he john yeah yeah i had, I had and for I, good reason i had soil envy yeah you do <laughs> you're on shocking soil uh, well, it's not really. You, I mean, you could, you, I guess it's soil just because it's that's what you call it, but it's sand. Yeah, sand, it, yeah. It's that grey, deep, like like in summer you ca- actually can't dig a hole mm. because it just collapses in on itself. It's, it's, it's not quite beach sand. It, How? It, 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 it's that grey coastal sand belt sand. How far from the co- in from the coast are you, or, or the the beach, the dunes? Four hundred metres. Oh right, you're quite close. Yeah, so, it's in that it's in that sort of primary Prime, June. Yep. That system back grey June yep. June sand. It's a part of it's a part of uh, Melbourne's sand belt that goes through Bomoris and Sandringham out to Cheltenham, Clayton South, Kingston Heath. And garden um, listeners, we are talking about the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens now. This that's where John. Is. No, we're talking about John's house. Oh, your house itself. John's is house. Sorry. place. No. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. But the Cranbourne Gardens is a also part of that. sandy. Yeah, and I, look, I, I don't know how many million years ago, but it, it was windswept sand that that swept in, probably off the bay, um, that that established the the, the sand belt, Melbourne, Melbourne's sand belt. But um, they cho- it, it, they chose the Cranbourne Gardens because it was such important remnant vegetation, didn't they? Yeah, that that was the that was the primary. Um, the look, there was a number of factors. It needed to be within an hour's drive of the CBD um, to have biodiversity values and uh, you know uh, uh, some size about it. So it's a thousand acres in the old three hundred and sixty hectares. So a big site that had a cover of indigenous vegetation, um, and the, it, it was thought that the sand associated with the site was. Um, making the garden, you know, really amenable to a wide range of native plants, except the location of the Australian garden was put onto a, an old sand extraction site, which was highly, highly, mm. highly modified, and you know, with all sorts of all, all, all sorts of issues, which have been reconciled. So, um, soils, I love soil. And mm. look, we talk about, and um, we've just talked about a number of different soil types that we're all on. And I don't know, people, I don't know whether listeners are feeling, feeling overwhelmed, I don't, either they might think they don't know enough about soil or they just think, like, what's the point? But it helps narrow down your plant choice when you, because it's a pretty, it can be pretty overwhelming trying to work out what plants to put into a garden. Think of all the plants in the world and even 
whatever plants are available in a nursery. But um, knowing your soil type can one just... Of, one of the first things I do is look up where it comes from. Yeah, look up where it comes from. And, and if it comes from the top of the, of the Himalayas, I think maybe I can't grow it. Okay. This, this yeah. is the, the Three CR Garden Show. If you wish to text us a question, you can text us on oh four double eight eight oh nine eight double five. We unfortunately can't take while we're zooming. We can't take phone calls, but you can text through, and Doug, who is our production person, will put those onto the screen, and I can read them out. So you can chat to answered. Doug on the phone. Now, Jean, there's some text messages that have come through already. I can't read them from where I am. There's uh, three I, up there. I can just read them. Um, morning crew, I have one well-established and two younger Callistamon Creek bottle brush in my Mount Eliza backyard. Last year they were bushy and flowering. This year they've dropped 80% of their leaves and the remaining foliage has black spots with what looks like spores. They are now so spindly and sad. Can I save them? Could it be myrtle rust? Thank you so much, Catherine. John. Well, let, let's hope it's not myrtle rust. Mm. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, myrtle rust would present, uh, you're quite obviously on the, the yeah. new growth, it would, it would have the orangey pustules and uh, you'd get cupping. And it, 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 it's, I think myrtle rust would present differently to um, the black. It, it it could be that there's scale or a sucking insect, uh, and and the black is a, a sooty mould which is growing on the yeah. honeydew um, uh, byproduct of the of the um, of the scale or or um, aphids. Um, so sooty moulds that secondary thing, but it does affect the capacity for plants to be able to photosynthesise because it takes that green surface and covers it with um, this black. Fungi or mould. Calistamin don't mind water, do they? they oh, especially uh, calistamin. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that it might be viminalis, but um, perhaps not. Um, but yeah, no. Because um, so a lot of things this year, I think, are struggling a bit because it has been just so much rain, but I don't think no. that would affect a calistamin. Uh, Callistamins would be lapping it up. Mm. They'd mm. be enjoying um, any, additional, any additional moisture. Um, look, I, I'd suggest maybe an eco oil that that could do both things. I, I mean, maybe it's get out with a, a hand lens or a magnifying glass yeah. and actually have a have a really, really, really good close look at whether there is some scale on the on the plant or some some sucking um, bugs or aphids. Um, sounds like it, but but I guess the first advice is to always try to work out what the What's what's the cause, mm. um, and identify the the, the 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 bug or the insect which is which is potentially causing um, the secondary sooty mould, but but absolutely the vigour of a plant will be affected significantly by um, um, by sooty mould and sucking in insects, um, and if it is a sucking insect and and sooty mould, maybe an eco oil. We have two um, messages from last week. Michael from Caulfield wanted to know if Stephen ever ate the shoots of the Jerusalem artichoke and wondered if they were edible. And I have no idea. And I wondered if anybody else in the room knows. I've never had a Jerusalem artichoke before, so I oh, can't say that. Wonderful soup. Yeah. yeah, I've had the juba. I've never had the shoots. Um, 
Nope. So none of, unfortunately, Michael, none of us know an answer to that. And Stephen didn't manage to get to your question last week. And then the other one from last week is Robert from Mitcham. He is asking about orchids. I grow both these orchids, but I don't know anything about them, which is a terrible thing. Phalaenopsis. How hard to cut the flower spike? And does that flower spike regrow? My understanding of a phalaenopsis is that uh, the if you cut the flower spike by about half, uh, it can re-flower from that spike. Um, my mum's listening. She could. She could actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you are listening, uh, mum Molly, um, uh, she reflowered phalaenopsis uh, and had phalaenopsis for years and years and years uh, in a, in her house, and that's what she does. Yes, I cut mine right down, and I always get new ones, but I don't actually know whether it comes from the same spike. The other question was about the crucifix or orchid. Oh yeah. And does it reshoot? Well, oh my, god. Mine yeah. does. I mean the crucifix orchid in my in my garden has just been in a pot for a couple of years and just sits in its pot, root bound and happy, and flowers. They thrive on abuse those things, but gee, if you do look after them, they can be super floriferous. Floriferous. As in <laughs> they can flower a lot. <laughs> um but yeah no i i can't see that um uh, uh crucifix or orchid um look i i don't think i'd bother with a crucifix orchid I, i'd be tempted to cut the spent flower stalks off because they they, they just flower so much if they're yeah, yeah. yes they're in, if they're in good nick whereas at phalaenopsis the moth orchids they um you know they're I, I did, again, my experience is my mum. They can be a little shy in reflowering compared to a... a, a and a I, think, I think that they like a bit of food. They probably do, yeah. I think they, they don't like to have too much room in the roots. They like to be a bit root-bound, yeah. but they yeah. do like a bit of food. But so they've got that classic orchid, the orchid um, epiphytic roots with the, the the growing the green growing tip, which takes in all the, the nutrients there. Mm. Highly um, uh, uh, epiphytic, as in growing on the branches of things. Trees. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, trees. Lovely plants. Wonderful. Well, I yeah. got I I share my house with with um a friend and her father when he died had heaps, so they just all turned up in my garden. So I've got pots all over the gardens with these <laughs> orchids, but I've never properly learnt. I must. I will next time I come on air. I'm going to know about orchids. It can be one of my um, one of those things that I do. Well, I guess they're um they're it's such a big group, isn't it? Well, it's yeah. huge, and you, of mm. course, are doing all sorts of really important orchid research at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Yeah, particularly well, specifically for terrestrial orchids, so orchids that grow uh, in in leaf litter in forest understories and and elsewhere, but but you know of the ground, um, and uh, many terrestrial orchids, maybe orchids as a whole group, but but certainly our ground orchids in in Victoria often have this really complex eco ecology that sits with them and around them. They have to have the mycorrhizal fungi in order to support nutrient and water uptake. Um, often got, you know, very specific pollinators. 
and in the absence of the pollinator or the um, you know soil health or um, you know these things can you know, drop out or become incredibly threatened in 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 nature, and the orchid conservation program at the Cranmer Gardens is. Um, it, I actually think it's one of the best um, uh, ex situ conservation programs globally. Um, the, 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 the number of species which are being held in the collection, the number of species that are being reintroduced back into the wild is staggering. Um, so, yeah, the, the orchid program at the RBGV is... It's a beauty. It's um, it, it's uh, uh, significant on the global scale, I think. Yeah, it really. And John, is. there there is a third party group involved in that too, isn't there? An orchid specific group? Is it just RBG or is there? Yeah, look, it, it's there are. It it, it dates ro- kind of back maybe twenty years. There was there was a working group formed called Tort, which was the threatened orchid orchid recovery team. So it was a multi. <laughs> and that's it was a multi discipline. Cool. Taught them terrific, <laughs> which they really were. They were taught and terrific. Um, that was that was kind of multi-agency. The RBG was involved. The Department of Conservation, Delwick, as we refer to now, the uh, ANOF, the Australian Native Orchids Society, yep. um, a bunch of universities and academics and stuff like that. And those players are still involved. So it's mm. still it's still very much multi-agency. Um, but it has its home now. This orchid recovery program it has its home now. The RBG V. Um, yep. But but yeah, it, it it it's quite a radial project in in that it links with all manner of, of, of different agencies. It's a, it's an extraordinary program. This is the Three CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Haywood, and I have in the studio with me Chloe Foster, and we have John Arnott and Tex Moon from various RBGs. Uh, to speak to you. If you wish to send us a message, 0488 809 855 for a text, or if you wish to speak to Doug on air, 94190155. Virginia, there's a couple more text messages that Doug's put up on the screen for us. Oh, great. I can see them. Um, Charmaine from Temple Stowe planted some canna lilies. Something is cutting or chewing the new leaves, and she was wondering what that could be. They've uh, taken out half oh. of them, so that's quite a big chew. That's yeah. It could, it could be that it was something very small as the as the leaf was emerging mm. from it from its rhizome, um, and as the thing uncooked, it it, 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 it got bigger <laughs> because they yeah. they kind of all yeah. Uh, yes, they're corkscrew when they come up. They're corkscrew, yeah, mm. yeah. So they emerge from a single point, but they're... I have the... to say it's, it's happened to some of my canners because my canners for years have been appalling because of the drought. And now the last four or five years, and we've had all this rain, I've got these canners that just keep spreading in a way that is actually a little bit over the top. And I must admit I don't worry about the bits that get eaten because by the time they've come up properly... They're pretty dominant. So I would think, Charmaine, that even though they've been eaten uh, in another month or so with all the other leaves that will be coming up as well, I do find I get slugs on mine, so it might be another case to have a little a little look. 
yep. um, you know, go around yep. at dusk and have a look for slugs because they, I, I have lots of slugs and snails, which I know I'm meant to like, but I don't. It's <laughs> one of those things. Charmaine might be on on trend. Canis making a big comeback. Mm. As, are they are they a popular thing? Because yeah, I, I, I tend I tend to think of them as an old fashioned plant, but I nana canners. Yes. Exactly, Nana Canners. Exactly. But well, I, I, them. I didn't like them because they were street planting in Bondi when I lived in Sydney. Mm. And you know, you tend to not properly respect things that are just street planting. <laughs> Nana Canners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that tickled my fancy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but are they, are I they do back? Th- I do think they are back more. And yeah. of course, they're. I mean, in the botanic gardens in Melbourne. They have a huge bed, which is an overflow yeah. bed from from the rain, garden. In the, uh, the rain garden, and they've got cannas in there. But I find my cannas look really awful when it's very, very dry and they don't get enough water. Oh, they definitely need yeah. to be wet most of the time. Whereas they've got them in this rain garden, which is there to take the excess yeah. and so can be very, very dry. I must admit it's not my favourite bed in the garden. I, no, it's wonderful when it's all like in flower. It. If you like a total mix of flowers, and you're not worried about mixing flowers that are, I mean, colours that are too close together. <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> it doesn't feel like a designed bit of the garden, whereas all the rest of it is designed beautifully. It's a a a, a mismatch, mis- yeah, mismatch of colours. It'd be good if it's, it's on mass though, isn't it? And then, it is very on yeah. mass, so it gets away and, with and, it. And, uh, you, yeah. And it makes it quite extraordinary when it's all in flower. Yeah. You go, oh, you know, you mm. almost sort of yeah. recoil from the from the brightness of it all. Now, we're here we've got a good one from Beck in Stanley. She's looking for a natural me- method to kill the desert ash. Um, and an uh, ornamental pair. Ring back. That have been planted mm. by the birds. I don't think that'll work with the desert ash. I think it'll still shoot up. Really? Oh, it sends it sends suckers everywhere <clears throat> for years. So, oh, sorry, is it the suckers or the trees? Well, what? she, she doesn't say, but I presume it's the trees. She's saying that the pear and the um, and the ash have been planted by the birds. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think if you if you ring bark, then they were that will probably encourage the suckering. Um, okay. Okay. I. Mm. I I've killed um I killed one when I first moved into my place and it is still suckering and I've been there 16 years. I think like a lot of these things it comes down to persistence as you're finding Virginia she, yeah. Yes, well she uses goats and that yep. I would have thought would help. But I, yep. I I mean I must I have to shamefully admit that I poisoned it and it still didn't stop it suckering although it's not too bad now. You know I just mm. pull them out. Fairly quickly. Yeah. Persistence. Mm. Unfortunately. I don't think there's an easy way around um, Desert Ash. Mm. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I'd like there to be. I'd never plant it. But obviously, obviously, Beck hasn't planted it. No. Do you have them in your garden, Tex? No, we don't. We don't um, got other fraxinus, but no, we don't see any of the uh, fraxinus and gustafolia, isn't it? Um, okay. No, we don't get it up here, which is good. Mm. 
Oh, can I just also say to people who are texting in, don't send us pictures because we cannot transfer them from one computer to the other, so we can't see them in the studio, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Um, we always put a few pictures on our Facebook page for you of things that we talk about during the show, but we can't see pictures in here. Could email them in if you need help troubleshooting. You could send it to our email address. Uh, but, yeah, we can't see pictures on the screen in the studio. And our email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au. And that way it'll get picked up for next back week. The, back, back to the desert ash. If, if, I mean, there's a, I'm just thinking how to respond to the, the question about natural ways of doing it. But, but there's potential, if it's, if it's the suckering, which is the issue, mm. the potential to put down um, clear plastic if it's a sunny side and solarize the surface um actually get that surface cooked effect effectively i mean that i mean that that works for weed seeds on occasions um, depending really good for that. mycorrhizae no 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 no, <laughs> no, no, no 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 that's right um i mean this is one of the problems that when you're getting rid of something i mean one of the reasons sometimes i resort to poison to the, the dreaded roundup <clears throat> is because any of the alternatives are equally vicious and I think black plastic or clear plastic is pretty vicious. And oh, yeah, for, yeah. And for yeah. my blackberries, which are my worst problem, I mean, I sat and pulled out all the wandering dew. It took several years, but I got rid of all the wandering dew. If I was making, if I was having a long phone call, I'd go and sit outside and while I was on the phone, I would just pull out wandering dew. Yeah. And that worked, but... For things like BlackBerry, that won't work. Just and, and, persistence doesn't work. And, and I was I was thinking, you know, there are on the market some um, contact uh, weed killers that that support the be and uh, you know organic and um, uh, kind of more of nature. Um, but I don't. I think they're. Mm. The, their potential application is for annual weeds. I don't think anything. Yeah. And you see, and when we when we use um, organic good things on insects, you want to get rid of your your whatever your aphids. But if you are spraying generously in the middle of the day, you're also going to wipe out your ladybirds. You're going to wipe out your bees. I mean, you've got to think about how you use use these things, even if they are organic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think I don't think we, my place is sorry, crawling I was just, in bees at the moment, so yeah. I'd have to be very careful what I'd spray. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really good point, Virginia. It's about you know there is there's never really a one size fits all or all or one approach fits all, and and it's about thinking of the the best approach for that situation, and and at the end of the and, and thinking about the consequences of, I mean, I think the issues with insecticides and 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 herbicides is, has been the potentially the over availability of them and the overuse of them mm. to the completely sort of inappropriate level, and that being the first thing. And I even had the moment the other day where I walked into the supermarket. I thought we were sort of beyond that a bit, but the first thing, the first shelf had had the all the different glyphosate spray bottles and you think yeah you, mm. you know it has a use it still has a use and there's there's moments where there's there's places where it's completely appropriate but 
there's just and it's never, spraying it everywhere, isn't it? It's never, ever appropriate to be spraying glyphosate in shorts and thongs. No. With, with no gloves on a windy day, which I have seen. I mean, you know, they say, yeah. oh, it's poisonous. You'll get cancer. Well, use it properly. Yeah, yeah. use it properly and, and you mitigate a fair bit of that, don't you? Mm. Um, <clears throat> back, to the, back to the tree roots. Um, mm. If you've got a mate with a tractor... Ah. A tractor backhoe excavator, yeah, if you can actually get a lot of it out. Get a lot yeah. of it out, you know, reduce the mass. I mean, if if what she's dealing with is really young ones, she does say they've been bird planted, um, maybe she can just, you know, just get, get it out, out fairly easily. But if it's an old <clears> one, <throat> I think she's in trouble. Yep. Well, best of luck to Beck from Stanley. Mm. Ruth from Bentley has a camellia with black splotches on the upper surface of her leaves. She's got many camellias and has never seen it before. And Ruth, I have got 32 camellias, not 32 different camellias, just 32 camellias. And I have got one that has got black splotches on it. And I've no idea what it is, but Tex, maybe he has an idea. Um, Black splotches is, uh, we're not talking like a waxy scale or something, no, is it? if they're the same as my black splotches, it's definitely not scale. It's almost so a bluey to... black. But what I have noticed, because it's been there a while, is that it's not on the new growth. And I've wondered if, again, it's, I mean, I have had so, I had four inches of rain in three days. I was going to say, I think, I think if it's something that's popped up this year, you'd be assuming a fungal. Yep. Mm. Um, Thing. And again, if they're if the camellia is with with vigor, I I wouldn't expect it to have too detrimental a impact on going. Um, but obviously, keep an eye on that. But but yeah, they're pretty pretty tough in most situations. I find I find them one of the toughest. I've got them mm. taking the northwest wind, and they came through the drought beautifully. I just I think camellias are underestimated in just mm. how tough they are. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't plant that beautiful yellow-flowered camellia, the nitidissima. I wouldn't plant that facing northwest, taking the sun. Oh. But, you know, some of them. Uh, and, and I have also found with my black splotches, splotches Ruth, that um, the new growth hasn't got it. So that mm. is another yeah. question for you. And I think the summer sun will take it out myself. That's yeah. what I'm hoping. And the other thing is that they they... <laughs> They're quite happy to have a good prune. So if it's just a matter of uh, cutting some of it out and getting rid of it, then I think you'll you'll find that it'll respond really well. Um, and and maybe a little bit like black spot in roses, you might increase the air circulation a bit. Yeah. Pick up the leaf litter on the bottom because that might harbour the next generation. Yeah. Um, yeah, but prune a lot. I I agree, Tex. They they'll benefit from a prune and. Mm. Yes, it's but, it's um, it's I, I think the camellia is an, is another um, a nana plant a bit. People have <laughs> taken the eye off the camellia, and particularly the waterhousia, I just find are so hardy. The ones I don't like are the ones that, as soon as the rain comes, they go yellow and then they don't drop off the plant. They don't. They see yeah. the yellowing, and that's only some of them. Those I think. They've just got to be chopped out. They're no good at all. But yeah. um, the camellias that have got quite an open flower particularly don't tend to do that, and they will drop their flowers when they go manky. 
Yeah. And I've just found them really fabulous. And the other thing too, my garden, I've got a whole lot of grevilleas, a whole lot of salvias and a whole lot of camellias that are in flower from July through, which means I'm providing the small birds with so much food. It's just fabulous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, those repeat flowering things, long flowering things, they're pretty great. Now look at these two. I have brought in, listeners, two long trumpety flowers. One is yellow with white tips. The other is very, very pink with a slight orange in it. So they're quite unusual. And I showed these two to those blokes on air before and it took them four goes. One of them. Which one of you got it? I think John got it in the end. Yeah. Yes. Cantua buxifolia. It's called the Pride of the yeah. Incas. And it's one of those yep. classic plants. The birds adore it. I have got so many New Hollands and um, there's just so many honey eaters in there. Spinebill. Yeah. Yes, the Eastern Spinebill. It's a fairly ugly plant. And I leave it there and I cut it quite hard after it's flowered because it's, a, it's not an attractive plant. But I keep it because the flowers are just so beautiful. I have put what? these onto the Facebook page if anyone wants to have a look. They do look like the, something um... that would fit in very well at Carnivale in Rio. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is South American flamboyance right in front of us, guys. <laughs> And then, and, and then there's the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just talking about Virginia. <laughs> They're beautiful, uh, big, trumpety, tubular flowers. They're yes. stunning. Yes, and you can see that there are yeah. colours. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the habit? What's the, what's the growth form? It's quite – it's a bushy shrub, yeah. probably to, to shoulder height. Mm -hmm. Um. It's in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne where it also looks fairly ordinary. I mean, when it's not in flower, you just it's don't just, see yeah. it because yeah. it's got, a, it's got a, a, a narrow and f narrow leaf, which is also fairly sparse. So you see a lot of this. It's an insignificant leaf. It's an insignificant leaf yeah. and there's quite a lot of stem and the stem's not attractive. So it, you have to have it somewhere where you don't mind it. I've... I've got a um, a rose growing, a, a pink rose growing through this one. So the rose takes dominance when it stops flowering, which helps a lot. How long does it flower yeah. for? Yeah. A month. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's worth it. A month, yeah. it makes those birds so happy. It brings them close to where I sit. Laburnums only ever flower for three weeks of the year and then they're done and I think it's worth it. Mm. John? Yeah. I can hear Stephen Ryan going, Oh, yeah, but you've got to have the foliage. Um, <laughs> the I think rest, yes. Stephen would be pushing back a bit hard there now, I reckon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, suspect, I suspect Craig would as well. I mean, it, it, it is not a plant. But then, you know, put a clematis through it. I mean, you know, there's ways yeah. of managing trees that, I mean, shrubs that are are not fantastic. And it's it. It is extraordinary. I mean, my garden at the moment is just a mass of flowers. It's yeah. It looks like I'm a brilliant gardener. In actual fact, it's all that rain. The rain mm. has been, you know, truly mm. fabulous, and it, everything is growing well. I have lost a mint bush, 
an Australian mint bush, and I think it's because it's got too wet. Yep. Did it just fall over? No, it's just dying. I look. I've been watching it all week, and it's just dying. Okay. I can't, and nothing else. I mean, they can be fairly short-lived. The prostanthers, they're not. (laughs) Oh, okay. They'd be a bit longer than that. I would expect. (laughs) John, you know what? Do you know what species of prostanthera it was? Is it just? Ovalifolia or yes, I think it is, and the other ones are all happy, but it's not. It is one of the few that's not on a slope. Okay, so Mm. I just think maybe it's not draining. Yeah, because they're another great genus that has just put on an absolute show up here this year. Um, And I, I I love prostanthers, and I was actually going to bring some in, but I didn't. Um, But yeah, such a great. My neighbour has got is a winery, Seville Estate Winery, Mm. and they've got an absolutely brilliant native garden. And they have yeah. got this really little prostanthera, and it's very dense. In its, okay. it's only how high is that? Is it a foot? The alpine one. I think they do the caniata. I think I've seen that yeah. out it's there. It's got a very dark, very small, dark, dark leaf, and it's just and yeah. it's so compact. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. They're, got... a, they're a lovely group of plants. Mm. Really, yeah. That that one. That's. Uh, is that, that it? Yes, that does look like it. You did bring some yeah, in, Tex. I, I did. I did. I did grab a prostanthera after all. I've got a bucket full of stuff next to me. But yeah, prostanthera cuneata, which is yeah, I, a beautiful alpine um, little shrub, and they almost coral-shaped kind of the the way the le- the leaves are arranged on the stem, and and yeah, the, I think they would be affected by being too too wet. Yeah. But again, for us up here, they they grow for probably two or three years and have really nice compact form and then start sort of dying off. But they're so easy to grow from cuttings that mm. you can sort of have them just just on on a, on a conveyor belt, just just putting more in as you go. Um, so, yeah, I think, I really think nice. that's a really important thing to do is to actually try and take cuttings of those things that don't last a long time. Yep. We, the, the, the prostanthera are a... a, a, a sort of a keystone species of the peppermint garden at the Cranbourne Gardens. Yeah. Given that most of them, not all of them, which is interesting, have aromatic foliage. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, they, they rotate in and out of the – do, we're doing exactly what you said, Tex. Mm. Young plants, uh, plants that are at their peak, plants that are probably past their peak, but they come out and just rotating things. Rotating yeah. Through. Well, it was one of the things, one of, my, um, one of my best friends in London, I lived in London for 20 years, and one of my best friends, her sister, was the head gardener at Sissinghurst. And when I got to go down there quite a lot, one of the things that absolutely astounded me was how many things they just took out as a matter of course all the time, things that I would, you know, nurture and keep going because they were shrubs, and, and they just prop them, turn them over, prop them, turn them mm. over. Um, and just as a matter of course, and I think, of course, and of course, in a garden like Sissinghurst, which is just absolutely one of the best gardens in the world, you you need to have it perfect if you have that many people coming through all the time. So you do have to have a really good prop area and be prepared to mm. to to deal quickly with things. Whereas I, although my garden's open in what three or four weeks' time, there's still lots of weeds there. Mine is not a commercial garden. It doesn't keep the standard up to that level at all. The garden. 
Yes. Mm. yes. To yeah. You, you'd have a few other prostanthras up there, Tex. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking the, the, I mean, the tree, the tree form of uh, the bush. Lazianthus. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 beautiful. And, and you know, you get the sort of, well, quite a bit of diversity in the flower colour even with those. And, and so we've got a lot of, um, we've got a prostanthra ovalifolia and rotundifolia in the garden, which have just gone through the, the great purple mass of flowering. Um, and then, yeah, as we sort of progress more, Closer to towards Christmas, we'll start seeing the the indigenous ones here, the, the Victorian Christmas trees, sort of flower. And they're the, they're the, again a type of thing that sort of sits there in the background, and and, and then all yep. of a sudden it's just full of, of white flowers and and yeah, an incredible species. But I I love uh, I, I love that genus actually, and and I have a really distinct memory of being at the and I'll have to pronounce this right because my I have probably two Polish women sitting at home listening to this <laughs> this at the moment. So the Streletsky Ranges, um, which I don't think is how most Australians pronounce it, same as Kosciuszko. Um, but doing a bush bushwalk through there and you were just hit with the smell of, before you even came close to seeing, and I think Prostanthra melissifolia and Streletsky, yeah incredible smell and then all of a sudden you know you sort of hunting them down and right on the edge of this track there's just stand of uh prostanthra melissifolia and and um and i remember going back subsequent years and having to find that same patch and having the exact same experience it's it's yeah there's something to be said for those extra kind of sensory things that plants plants can give you at times but yeah yeah i love as i say prostanthra is a a, a really special genus to me so I'm Virginia, and this is the 3CR Garden Show. If you would like to talk to us, you can text us on 0488 809 855, or you can ring Doug on the telephone on 94190155, or you can send us an email at gardening at 3cr.org.au which won't be addressed till next year. Next week. <laughs> I promise we'll do it something before we'll next try. year. <laughs> I mean, 2022 is coming up. It's too. getting it's close right. anyway, Virginia. Yeah, it's not that far off. Tex, we, um, we've been working together on a, on a project called Care for the Rare. Um, yep. Which is plants grown at the RBGV but distributed to regional botanic gardens across the state. Um, and... The uh, Dandelong Ranges has got a is is got a significant holding of subalpine and alpine things that were that were introduced into that collection. Was did we give you a Prostanthera Walteri or a couple of those? Do you know, I think we did get that in the last lot. I'd have to go and have another look. I know there was some some. Um, oh yeah, I'll have to check that one, John. But if not, we'll, John we'll be, no, no, that's all right. Um, I know we did get a couple, but I don't know that we got Walter I. But yeah, we'll have to look at it. But well, we can. Come are you going to say something about it? Oh no, I was just going to say because that that a few of the prostanthras are they're that they're actually quite rare. In yeah, the, in the Victorian flora, there's another one named after Jean Galbraith down in mm. uh, down in uh, the Gippsland Plains. Galbraithia. Yeah, there's a few that have got conservation significance, which is I think I think Monticola was one we got a few. Monticola. Yep. 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 I remember a plant that 
came into Melbourne Botanic Gardens through the department. The department contacted the gardens and said, we've seen a plant we don't think we've seen before, we can't identify it. Wow. So people went up to have a look. It was somewhere, I presume, at the back of the Yarra Valley because it was at the edge of the eucalypt forests. And they didn't know what it was and they took it back and it turned out to be a new plant that hadn't been and they took cuttings and they took seed and took various... And then the area was completely wiped out in the bushfires. Wow. Just completely disappeared. Wow. But it was in the nursery at RBGV. And, of course, this is a while ago. That was the big, the really big ones 12 years ago. The Black Saturday fire. Was yeah. it, was it yeah. Nematolepus? I think it was. Corsonio? Yes, I couldn't remember the name. This, this, this fella. Oh, I... oh, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling John would talk about Care for the Rare, so I, yes. uh, I went and grabbed some. And it is fully in flower at the moment, shiny, shiny Nemon, Nematolepus. Wilsonii, but uh, Nemi Will is it's uh, is a little bit easier to pronounce. It's my oh, pet name ne- for it. I like that Nemi Will. Yeah, little Nemi. Nemi Will. Will. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, but it, it is an amazing story that they just happen to have been. Well, John tells this story probably better than I will, but happen to be collecting it for the Millennium Seed Bank, John. Yeah, for the Millennium Seed Bank. Yeah. Just not long before the the Black, and Black Saturday fires, and there's just the. To, oh, it's a very small population, King Lake Lake Mountain, yeah, um, O'Shaughnessy Reservoir out that way. Yep. Yeah, and and yeah, they did completely get wiped out. But then the the nice story about that was that they actually did regenerate. They would the they the, the thought they weren't sure whether they would just because of the intensity of that fire, but they did. But then of course you've got all these the next round of risks, which is browsing animals and everything like that that they had and specifically deer that they had to then sort of fence the areas off and what's nice about that one is that's one of the first plants i think that we um got out of the royal botanic garden to plant up here as part of care for the rare and they they are really really well up here they still Mm. they they also get impacted by deer up here which is a bit unfortunate um but we've gone full circle with with that one john where now rbgv staff are coming up to propagate off the ones from here to to sort of to bulk up the collection. So so a really really good story as far as uh, meta collections and that sort of ex situ conservation story. But yeah, that's a actually a beautiful plant, beautiful smelling plant. And um, I don't know, they get to they get three or four meters in height and and fairly dense dense shrub. Um, and and yeah, at this time of year, you just get covered in these um, little white flowers that stem Tex, you've got you on, Tex you is covered yeah 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 it's beautiful. I, I was just wondering if you're on site today Tex you might take a photograph of the flowering plant and stick it on the Facebook page yep I can I can do that and um just as a, a not to do with this subject but I did get a message from my wife saying good pronunciation <laughs> so, well, we've, so, we've had so a they po- are listening in we've had a Polish person Michael from Forest Hill text in he's from Polish <laughs> Polish background, and he thinks that the pronunciation of Kosciuszko should be Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko, yes. Yes. Right. yes. <laughs> I have heard that too in my household, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes, well, we never say Kosciuszko, do we? That sounds way better, <laughs> no, though. That's cool. We're, we're, yeah. yeah. What well, starts here, we'll, uh, we'll start a movement. <laughs> we'll start a movement, absolutely. <laughs> the, key, 
John, to I keep think my family got, happy. I think yeah. Cranbourne Gardens has a collection of Nemi Will in the Forest Garden. Uh, yeah, not doing as well as um, they are in the Daniel Rangers, which which is to the point that we, we talked about earlier. Well, quite. Where, One wouldn't expect it to do as well. No, <laughs> if it no, from a, up there. Up hotter, drier, mm. um, low relative humidity in, in on those really hot summer summer days seems to be a, a bit of a limiting factor for that, that species. But that said, I mean, that there, there is... It also that also speaks to the role of gardens and gardeners um, in growing things outside their their natural range um, and understanding the tolerances of that, that that particular plant. I mean, you think about oh, what's a what's a good what's a good example? Um, Carimbia citriodora mm. is mm. really limited natural distribution. Mm. Um, so in nature, it occurs in Cape York and you know far north Queensland in you know, quite dry areas, not the rainforest side of the hills, but the the, the drier side of the hills. And you know we're probably three thousand Melbourne's three thousand kilometres away from its natural range, and it's doing beautifully mm. well as a as a as a, a garden plant. So there's so you know it, it's it's the exception to the, what we were saying before is you know plantier conditions is just sensible. Um, but but yeah, but I it's think always it's, worth having a go. You never yeah, know. And and I think and I think that's absolutely such an important role for botanic gardens to be playing in this modern kind of role for botanic gardens, where we, you know, there's the bleak reality is that there's a lot of plants in the wild that are at risk and of not being able to grow in their natural habitat for the for the for, for the future. And and so to be able to take them and grow them in sort of protected areas in botanic gardens as safe havens where we can actually monitor them and, and, and test them uh, mm. as how they could actually survive in, which, I mean, we're doing that here with the Alpine Collection, John, where obviously we're only at five 500 metres above sea level here, which we're trying to take these plants from the Alps and grow them at a much lower altitude um, and, and to see, see how they go. And then... Then the other side of that is you've got that genetic material if, if these things do yeah. do go pear-shaped in the wild. And, yeah. and that was one of the sort of thing, one of the reasons for starting up this Care for the Rare project with you guys was some species can do really well outside of their natural range, but some of these rare species just can't, and that's one of the reasons why they're rare. Yep. So for mm. you guys to conserve them in um, ex situ oh. but in their range... Um, can help and and if preserve a, them. a lot of people don't know that we actually have native rhododendron in Australia, two of them. Yep. That's right. Yep. And they come from very high altitudes in Australia, which of course are going to be very badly affected by global warming. That, that, yep. that is, that's another project that we're collaborating on. And um, uh, yeah, <laughs> Tex and I do a, a, lot, a lot of this Zoom meeting, meeting things. It's just a, a matter of our... <laughs> business during the week but i yep. you might mention or potentially even share that slide on facebook of the, the the cloud forest garden it looks like it's going to be an amazing garden yeah yeah i can i think i can do that yeah so yeah that's right we're we're actually growing well we're at the final stage of designing what we'll what we're calling the australian cloud forest collection which will go up in the up here in the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Garden on a new area of land, and it is really um, well. It's about sh preserving and showcasing the 
written rare and threatened plants from those far north Queensland mountain peaks. But for us, we're obviously going to have a specific focus on those two native species of rhododendrons that you were talking about, Virginia, which incidentally, I'm not, I think formally we can only still say one species, even though the DNA testing has happened and, and I think pretty much complete, conclusively proven that there is two species. I don't think it's actually been formally published yet. But um, sorry. But yeah, rhododendron, no, you're right, we, we do the same. Rhododendron lockii and viriosum are the, are the two. And, that, and they, we do actually have, actually growing out in our nursery at the moment, quite a, a conclusive genetic representation of that of the different populations of of those um those two species of of um rhododendrons which so you're talking about nine different mountain tops from up up both south and north of cairns so which is quite weird but actually quite well climate matched to the Dandenong ranges botanic garden because up there they're well above 900 meters up there up in the cloud forest so you can't grow these plants in cairns um, it's just but too, too but hot down here. They, this too is, hot. This yeah. is just and, the um, project text. I'm I'm so excited for it. Emma Heard was telling me about it recently because she's involved in the project as well. Yeah. So so Andrea Proctor Landscapes. Um, we we engaged yeah. to um to design it. Um and Emma, yeah Emma Heard who was on last week, I think or the week before. The week before. Um yeah on the show, she she works with Andrea. So that's so yeah she's she's involved with that and. Yeah, look, it is. It's a it's an incredibly exciting project, and 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 again, RBG Victoria Cranburner growing all the plants. Um, it's worth mentioning too that I think this project started, oh, gee, back in 2015, 16, um, and it, it got legs because of a lot of work that the Australian Rhododendron Society put into, and it was it was about going up and and finding these native rhododendrons in the wild because it's a, they're, they're plants that have been in cultivation for a long, long time, but all that provenance information has been lost over time and, and, and obviously they've been, you know, selected over the years and, and, and to get the most the best form for cultivation. But, yeah, we've lost lost all of that important information. So that's where it sort of started and the Rhodey Society were working with the Australian Tropical Herbarium up there in James Cook University and that's when the first sort of collecting trips happened which then inspired these this second round of of uh of collecting trips and some really great funding from the Ian Potter Foundation to go up and and collect oh how many target species John um, I can't I, remember I, I think this there are over 81 uh, this, this, yeah, no, it's, uh, and that's not over eighty-two. <laughs> <laughs> there are eighty-one target target species. So, and and specifically chosen because of their rarity and 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 their conservation value. So, so but then a lot of opportunistic sort of um, collecting while they're up there. So it's a it's an incredible pa palette of plants to be to be working with and. Um, and yeah, an incredibly important project is, mm. yeah, all and, in that wet tropics bioregion, world yeah. world heritage listed area. So yeah, incredible, and and the reason that they're targeted, just to expand on what Tex was saying, is they they occur literally occur nowhere else on planet Earth. Yeah, they, they occur. There's some things that only only occur on one peak, right? So so it's natural ranges, you know, uh, the you know that area of a house block, um, mm. on a, on a 
a peak in far north Queensland. And it um, just shows how important it is that we be really careful when we destroy areas because yeah. we don't know what we are destroying. There's a um, uh, there's a there's a a thing called boia, which is in the same family as African violets. Um, it's virtually an, <clears throat> an Australian native African violet. It's an Australian wow. violet. <laughs> what colour is the flower? Blue. Sounds yep. wonderful. Growing up, up that way? Up, up, up on up those peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, see, that must be something that it would be possible to commercialise and get out. In, because if, you know, if we get lots and lots and lots of Melbourne gardeners growing these things where it's possible, it just does help. Wouldn't that be great? As an indoor plant, potentially. Yes. I don't, mm. we, we, we're, we're struggling to grow up grow it as a garden plant. Um, Texel will probably have a little bit more luck, but um, yeah, it, it, it's it. You you wouldn't think that the in the Australian flora you'd have um, rhododendrons, the equivalent of an African violet. You know, all of these things. There's a whole bunch of things up there that 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 kind of break the rules when it comes to Australian plants. How because exciting! They've got these cool, cool. What, yeah, a few months ago, Stephen was talking about um, uh, subtropical blueberries. Mm -hmm. mm. So there's a whole bunch of these subtropical ericaceae things that are on these mountains, and you know, it with more affinities to the northern hemisphere, and you know, it just it, it it's a remarkable flora mm. on those mountain peaks. This is the Three CR yeah. Garden Show, and you are listening. To Virginia Hayward, Chloe Foster, John Arnott, and Tex Moon. If you wish to ring in, ring 94190155 or text a message 0488 809 855. I think it is very exciting, all those th that these things are being preserved in some way. Yeah, and important. And I was just say, I actually have a plant that I thought. It, it, it's it's not a far north Queensland one, but it kind of ties together your plant from earlier and some of these other discussions we're having. But it is a varia, so it's from the it's a rhododendron tuber. So from that varia um, subsex subgenera of um, of rhododendron. So this this one originates from New Guinea. So varias which collects that the native rhododendrons as well. So that that varia group is is sort of focused all around the equatorial areas so a lot actually from new guinea but again they grow way up in the alps and, and a lot of the varias actually grow as epiphytes lithophytes in rocks and, and in fern logs and way up in in the junctions of tree branches and things like that so so a really interesting group of plants and this one i think rhododendron tuba is just one if we if you, from a varia point of view it's one that could be in just about any garden it's so hardy it's really and it just the, the flowers are incredible and it tends mm. to flower sporadically almost year round. Um, but really long wonderful. trumpets mm. uh, and, and yeah, just, just, a, I can put a photo up of it, but, but it's a, a really beautiful plant, really hardy. We, they do really well here and, and similar flower shape to the Cantua, to, to mm. the Cantua that, that Virginia was pointing out earlier it's so got a, it's got a bigger the end is a much bigger flower it's it's a, a white with slight pink on it yeah rhododendron it's absolutely beautiful hmm. yeah. i ripped out the rhododendron in my garden this year i just gave up on it i didn't plant it and it was pla planted facing north 
yeah. on the western side of the garden. And so it looked fabulous in flower for two weeks and spent the yeah. whole of the summer looking like it was just about to die. So yeah. I put it out of its misery this year. I mean, you don't plant rhododendrons on facing northwest. No. And the, no. And the Dandenong Ranges Botanic Garden where you are, Tex, is east facing, I think. Or you got pr- you've got protection from those the northwesterly side with the mountain. Uh, well, we've got a bit of everything. We are, I mean, the the gun does run to the north, but where there's yeah. a lot of topographical changes throughout the garden so a lot of different pockets that that and 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 we do have a lot of protection from cool temperate rainforest on the on the edges of it as Mm. well so a lot of mountain ash and things like that so yeah there's a lot of a lot of zone well and and we i think most listeners may know or may not know we used to be the national rhododendron garden so so a rhododendron collection is is the the uh yeah, it's 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 amazing and it's really on show at the moment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's but it's a point that they're not, and a lot of them aren't. Some some are more uh, heat and drought tolerant than others, but a lot of them aren't. So so places like this to see them on mass is a, is, a, is a, and they're growing in a cool temperate rainforest up here, so it suits them perfectly. Am I right to say, Tex, that? There are rhododendrons that are Mediterranean. Um, Ponticum is that is that one that goes through it, Portugal and? Uh, uh, good question. Where, where does Ponticum come from? It's a, it's an incredibly vigorous and hardy hardy uh, rhody, and and in in it's it's the one that that I think in the UK Virginia is is, is quite a weed. Um, is that so the purple one. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. It comes so. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think I think they're still. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about Mediterranean, John. But no, we, you're right. We'll, we'll Native to up. the Iberian Peninsula and Southwest Europe, oh, and the okay. Caucasus regions of Northwest Asia. Okay. Yeah. It is a shocking weed in Scotland. Yeah. So, yeah. What was my point? I, I, I just to, just to follow up on what you were saying. Texas. Well, I mean, people. Yeah. I, I'm sure people don't know that we've got native rhododendron up the top end of Australia, or that mm. there are a lot of rhododendron in New Guinea. I mean, people do think of yeah. rhododendron as a Himalayan plant. Oh, yes, yeah. And yeah. I, I had no idea that one, which I have seen all over over Britain. Shocking in Wales, shocking in Scotland, and it's from the Iberia, from Spain and Portugal. Yes. Well, yeah. well done, John. <laughs> it, it is an incredibly large and complex genus of plants, and you were talking about orchids before, and I'd, I'd, I'd compare it to that. That that, and it is the type of, again, that type of genus where they are still finding um, new plants that that they they weren't aware of, or or separating them out from others, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of work happening. So well, that's one of the things. Yeah. It's the bane of people like me. I just learn a nice Latin name yeah. and go and change it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, and then change it back later <laughs> sometimes. But Paul, and, and... Paul from Abbotsford has just asked us, he's recently been to the Melbourne Botanic Gardens and is complaining that a lot of things are not labelled. I know that we, I know there is a problem with labels just getting nicked, which, yeah. and they're, you know, it takes quite a lot of effort. They're not a cheap thing to be putting out. But he also says there's a lot that say of garden origin. What does that mean? Okay, a garden origin plant would be something that um, was found possi- possibly as a, a sport or a seedling, um, 
that was cultivated in someone's garden and they said, oh, that looks a little bit different uh, and mm. it's been given a name and then cloned. Um, so sort of bred of a garden or... Uh, um, and dessert. which means it is absolutely not a species. It's not something that occurs in the mm. wild. It, it still could be a... It, you, you could still get it to species. So what's a good example of garden origin? Um, oh, well, there's a whole Camellia, bunch of... Camellia, Tammy... Tammy um, what was his name, the Prime Minister? Tammy Fraser? Yeah, Tam- no. there's a camellia called Tammy Fraser. That turned right. up in their garden. Yeah, that would be garden origin. Mm. Things yes. that are things that are bred. So mm. uh, cultivars are all garden origin, is that right? Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd call cultivars yeah. garden origin. Yeah. They've been ma- made by human somehow yeah. and yeah, generally not found in the wild. If they're found in yeah. the wild, you'd probably call them a hybrid. That's right. Some sort of hybrid because... A naturally occurring hybrid, yeah. Quite yeah. likely those two species that did hybridise in the garden, which we call the garden origin, probably may not occur together in the wild. Correct. Yep. Yep. But good question. That was a mm, yeah. really good yeah, question. No, great, great question. And, 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 I, and I think back to as far as the labelling, I think fair to say, John, that's I wouldn't say it's the bane of our existence, but mm. it is a major, major job to, to keep to keep up to date with. And, and same as... It's in there with record management and all of those things that that happens. A, a wayward uh, a wayward mower can make short work of a of a label, uh, as you say, Virginia. Uh, uh, some somebody pulling it out to look at it, or just for or actually for, half inching it. I have a great collection yeah, yeah, just, of, just, of botanic garden signs in my garden at home. <laughs> that's oh, that's where they are. Yeah. <laughs> right, prosecution immediately. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, yeah, labelling. And of course, you, do, you, of you spend quite a bit of time putting a label there, and you're very proud of it. And then they go and change the name, so the yeah. label gets ripped out, or people complain that it's got the wrong wrong name on it. it, it, it I think it's also. No, you click, you sorry, sorry, John. I was going to say it's. I mean, some things will have tiny little labels next to them in botanic gardens. Quite often, mm. that they're they're just there as a it's it's a placeholder for the staff. They know what it is. You just cannot have a big label on every plant in a in a botanic garden. Um, that it'd be lovely to, to know. Every... You have to make choices, don't you? Because if you don't, yeah. you have a, a garden full of labels. Yeah, right. Like yeah, my garden yeah, at the moment is full, is full of black plastic pots that have had the bottom cut out of them because I'm trying to protect so many plants from the rabbits. And it does look like my garden's got a whole lot of pots scattered all over it. It hasn't. Yeah. But it's the thing you see. If, and if you've label every garden the thing you'd see when you looked around would be the labels not the garden but but it but it is a good point um and and one of our one of our challenges is to you know maintain you know there's an expectation that that folks can go into a botanic garden and if you see something that you like that you've got the capacity to be able to identify that in look in the absence of um labels take and, and i mean it's a step it's a process step but you can take a photograph of, of that plant and then flick it through to the RBG contact us site. Um, and that'll often, in, in, in fact, inevitably, um, that, that is a means of, of uh, addressing that. So there is that, there is that function, take a photo, flick it through to the RBG, the contact us site. Um, and the folks in the, the media team contact horticulturists and we'll, we'll identify things for you through that mechanism. I've got a good message for us. Let me read it to you. G'day, crew. 
There are definitely two Australian rhododendron species. Can never understand why they were lumped into one species. One has curved tubular flowers that is pollinated by birds. The other has straight bells, which is not necessarily pollinated by birds. I think there yep. is a move to separate them again, so that is pleasing. As far as getting more labels into Melbourne and Cranbourne, perhaps people would like to provide donations to enable <laughs> label production. Good morning. Roger. Roger. Guess who? <laughs> so, excellent, excellent so yes. Roger, and thank you. <laughs> yes, no, and, and, and the work is and, – and to be clear, I think the work has happened. So the DNA testing, that was part of the sort of remit of that project as well, was to actually get the DNA testing material to come Conclusively prove that there are the two the two rhododendron species and very very accurate. So Lockie I has the curved tubular corolla, um, and I think occurs on the mountaintops south of Cairns. Viriosum has much straighter, shorter um, corolla, and on mountaintops north of north of Cairns. So clearly two species. As I say, it's just a matter of the literature catching up at mm. the moment. So. Now, my next one, I think, is a little bit puzzling. I would like to know where in Melbourne I can buy a flower plant called Green Rose, Rosa chinensis verdifloria. And then it says, is it more native to Western Australia? Well, there are no native Australian roses, so we'll skip that bit. And Rosa chinensis verdiflora. Does anyone have any ideas? I will make a note of that one and ring up John Arnott and ask him. No, John Arnott won't know. <laughs> I don't mean John Arnott, I mean John Newstead. <laughs> no, John Arnott won't know. Sorry, John Arnott. John Arnott. I will ring up John Newstead and ask if he knows, because he does have a lot of species roses and he might know. And if that's the case, George, we will come back to you next week. Um, but I lost the sign. Doug, if you could write that down for us, I will make sure that we have something for um, the green rose. Great. Um, Tex, just back on roadies, um, you did go to the United States two years ago for a... Oh, it had to be a yeah. Just Botanic Gardens Conservation International meeting on rhododendron. Yes, yes, the Global Rhododendron Conservation Consortium, I think, was the was the the final. But yeah, run by Botanic Gardens Conservation International. Yeah, so that was an interesting, really interesting thing to be part of, and and looking at at rhododendron specifically because it is such a large um and complex genus but also because there is a lot of the areas that they occur naturally in the wild uh, again highly at risk from climate change but also a lot of political pressures in some of those areas as well so so it's a it was a basically trying to set up a framework for how we do i guess this in ex situ conservation conservation horticulture at a global le level specifically looking at one genus of plants and the idea being that it would then be um, rolled across other genus too so I think there's been a subsequent magnolia and camellia consortium 
so uh, there was an, an oak one already done so so that was heavily heavy involvement from the global tree campaign and people like that so so yeah there's a lot of this stuff happening worldwide and obviously it's probably taken a little bit of a backward step over the last two years um just with everything going on globally but um but yeah um botanic gardens conservation international are a ma major player in that um so they was it the global strategy for the conservation of plants um has has a couple of points in there that directly relates to botanic gardens growing ex, ex situ conservation collections so that's where that sort of comes in but yeah i've got a plant in my garden that i um couldn't identify and meg bentley managed to identify it and every other expert i had couldn't and it was something that was imported from western china to Australia and it took them 12 years after bringing it in to actually identify what it was. Wow. So these things can be very, very difficult. You're leaving. That's Rhinocanthus Beziana. Have you got, you must have it in your garden. Tex? Uh, me? You. I think we might have propagated some off you, haven't I we, I think Virginia? you might have, yes. And it's, a, it's um, fabulous. I'm not sure. I know it's yeah, in, the, the... in the, uh, the Blue Mountains Botanic Gardens. It's got the most fabulous flower. And it's, yeah. it's in our, yeah. in the Chinese collection in the in the South Yarra Botanic Gardens. Mm. Yep. And in my garden, it looks wonderful, and I've been giving it away to as many people as possible because at one stage I was about the only person who had it. I've no idea where I got uh -huh. it from. And that's a point. That's the point of of, of these multi-site holdings mm. is that if um, you know something happens to that plant and you were the only gardener that that had that plant it would be it would be lost and and that's really the agenda for well, botanic gardens but, but plant trust as well it's it, it mm. is uh, it is and, about having these and when with plant trust we have botanic gardens with collections that we know they're safe when they're with individuals what happens when that individual moves or yeah. gets old or whatever you know mm. we, we can so easily lose collections then if they're with individuals i mean Plant Trust, which is called Plant Heritage in Britain, is in, it's really well organised in Britain because there's just so many gardeners, so they, they have ways of making sure that they can share these things, whereas it's in a country the size of Australia and with many fewer gardeners, it's, it's difficult to make sure we keep those collections going. Mm. But anybody who has got a collection and thinks they could register it with Plant Trust, contact Plant Trust at the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, it's a really... Important group, I think. Sorry, it, it is. It is, and I think you know, John and I'll talk a lot about care for the rare in this Australian cloud forest and looking at plants that are endangered in the wild. But it's also there's such an important part to play with cultivated plants in this country as well. Like it's so, it is well, really, really difficult to bring plants in. into and the country things like now. Cianophis, and, and, which is now, yeah. it, they think it transports sudden oak death. So there's no yep. way we'll ever get a Ceanothus back into the country. If we lose no. the ones we've got, we'll never see them again. And and that that's I, I remember being on the show with Jane Tonkin a while ago and her story of uh, coming into horticulture sort of by default because of her dad. And then, but if she hadn't have carried on that legacy, you yes. sort of think about how many plants you would would have lost. And that, and that's that. There's lots of stories like like that around. And I think it. it it's such an important part for gardeners and nursery people to play to just, yeah, what what we've got here now is we have to keep. 
and and distribute so so it is protected there was a uh a, well there is a, a, a garden in the black range new marriott's garden mm. just out of the grampians and um i can't recall when the fire went through uh neil and wendy's garden but it you know they had a they had an incredible Dravillia collection um and you know percentage of the collection was was lost, lost yes uh, and uh you know he's re- rebuilt that collection but if there were duplicates um mm. in other native gardens or um individual gardens or uh, botanic gardens even um that it would be far easier to get those things back into mm. into cultivation and i guess that's the point of plant trust isn't it it is mm. we have a message from cameron in adelaide who says Great to see John on the garden show, meaning the television. And he is oh, yeah. he is planting native grasses in his garden in sunny spots and was wondering what your favourites are. Favourite native grass? Um, native grasses. John and my, Chloe, I reckon. <laughs> I think my favourite native grass, not necessarily because of its ornamentation, but um, because of it is kangaroo grass. That would be my favourite. That would be my favourite grass, kangaroo grass. And I think I got in just ahead of Chloe. <laughs> Themida, yeah. Themida, Themida Triad. Yeah. I'm getting a growing love for Ostrostiper. The mm. flowers on them are beautiful. absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful yep. colours and really showy stamens. When Beautiful. they do, when they do pop out, like you have to look close for them, but they're there. But they kind of glisten in in the light as, as yes. well. Yes. Um, no, 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 they're beautiful. There's a uh, an Ostrostiper elegantissima, which is mm. absolutely gorgeous. Yep. I mean that 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 is just so highly ornamental. It's almost downy. Mum's got um, Ostrostiper mollus in her garden, and it's lime green and quite um, fluffy flower head. And robust, yeah. yeah, quite a tall, quite a tall yeah. grass, quite a structural grass. And they grow in like they don't need any water. They just grow like <laughs> most of the species where they grow naturally is really, really dry spots. So you can put them in really dry spots well, in the that'll garden. That'll be good for Cameron from Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, mm. and there'd be um, ostrostiper that are indigenous to the Adelaide region. I'm not sure on this particular species, but absolutely. And the whole power. I mean, it's such a big group, yeah. but um, you know, the power level Adirii, and mm. there's a whole range of tussock grasses, they're, and they're the classic, that classic shaped tussock. Um, uh, yeah, power po is really not. And the, the other lovely thing about grasses is just how they they, oh, they move wave in the, in the air. Yes, the movement yeah. they, so they add to a garden is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now we have a um, few more questions, which I think we should. Well, we need to get to. We're them. running out of time. Somebody yeah. wants to know how to propagate erniums. Well, in my experience, you just break them off, leave them for three or four days, so that the the end where they've broken off calluses, and then replant them. They're actually yep very easy to do. And somebody. And sorry, that was aeonium, yeah. Yeah. Aeoniums, mm. yeah. So yeah, you get yeah, the so. green ones and the really um, the wine coloured ones. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some high panel. Some of my street tree roots are above ground and have been mowed over, cutting into the root. Will it recover? And if I plant some ground cover plants to protect them from the mowing, is that a good idea? Well, definitely, protecting them from yeah. the mower is an excellent idea. 
And I would have mm. thought she doesn't say which, but if it's a street tree, it can probably take it. Would be my instinct. Yeah. It's it's probably it, 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 that's right. I mean, it, 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 they'll callous over over time, but it's let's just say that would be horticultural best practice. Hopefully, yes. they yeah. don't sucker. Well, some yeah, that's what when I'm they get mown, yeah. they can start suckering, and that's awful. Yeah. The ground cover yeah. would probably be a good option. And then yeah. the the last one for the moment is Robert from Mitcham, who has been given gloriosa lilies, and was wondering how to plant them. Do any? I have gloriosa lilies, so I would say you're best off keeping them in pots. That has been my experience, and I do know that when you plant them, you plant them horizontal, not okay. up or down. Partly because you don't know which is up or down, so you plant them horizontal. Mm. I I do know some people do plant them in the ground and in some places they're considered to be quite weedy. Yeah, well, yeah. But I would plant them in a pot, Robert, from Mitcham. And if I get other advice during the week, somebody contacts me and says, oh, no, it's easy to do in the ground. Mm -hmm. I will also put something up for next week for you, Robert. Thank Does you. anyone else have any opinion um, on Gloriosa lilies? John Arnott shaking, shaking his head uh, vigorously. <laughs> No idea. <laughs> they are very beautiful. They're gorgeous, yeah. Yeah, I think they're wonderful. But I've, um, I've found them difficult to grow in the ground. So, John. Can I just jump in with one, uh, because I, I do believe that this would be posted onto the Facebook page. Um, but last week we, um, uh, in our research garden, planted a whole range of things called Ajuga australis um, and um, these they're all Ajuga australis they're, they're all taxonomically well no, they're all called Ajuga australis but I'd be surprised if there's not uh, there's just a huge amount of variation from from big robust grey foliaged uh, plants to little diminutive things to things that are suckering to things that are spreading uh, things with shiny green foliage things with dull gray foliage just just this super amount of variation and the rbgv are doing some work on the genetics to try and unpick um uh, australis as a group and it might be that there's a whole range of other species or, they do vary or, or, or geographic forms or enormously something like that. don't they um but yeah yes yeah so it's a little bit like the rhododendron that that there is a role for for botany to to um Sort it out. Yeah, sort of that. Yeah. Between the, the, the different things. But, yeah, if the picture comes through onto Facebook, you'll see the, 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 just the diversity of, of, of form and, and colour and texture and foliage and size. It, it, it's a fascinating collection. And we're displaying those in, the, um, in the, the, the research garden. So it'll be fantastic to watch that over, over, over time. Um, and that's supporting the activities of the Plant Sciences Division at, um, at the Herbarium. Excellent, excellent. And, John, you were on garden. We, we haven't talked about this, but you were on Gardening Australia last week, like TV star on the show this morning. <laughs> yep. It was a, I can't swear on air, it was a freaking brilliant story. And, I, I mean, we were talking about Care for the Rare before. Um, you spoke very well and you didn't sound nervous. Thank you, Chloe. Um, no, it was fantastic. The work that, that the whole crew were doing down there was awesome and it was great to um, spotlight it. It, it. It's really lovely to be able to profile um, 
that the important work that's that's happening across our botanic gardens. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think Kofta introduced the, the slot really well, saying, you know, botanic gardens are places where you picnic and you gather and they're places of beauty, but there's all these layers that sit behind and, you know, having that opportunity to, to um, talk about one of those layers was mm. good. And and to see the world of see the 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 role of the field botanists, yes, um, yeah, that image of Andre Messina sitting up the cliff at climbing the cliff, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gorge to uh, see Westringia criminifolia, the cliff Westringia. Was... Andre has done some brilliant work since he's been at the Botanic Gardens. He's an incredible botanist. He's a beauty. He was my uh, he was my botany demonstrator when I was at uni. He was studying his PhD. Uh, which he did on Illyria. Illyria, yeah. yeah. But yeah, his his plant knowledge is incredible, and I the field botany, the collecting that that's, I mean, the, the botanic gardens have always done amazing collecting, but Andre's continued that, and the the field the that science and the horticulture combination with the field botany and the wild collecting that you guys have been doing is very exciting. Yeah, it's been it. it really, it, it's it's really exciting. It's exciting work, and you know, yeah, really relevant. And you know, what, how um, just fortunate are, are, are we and privileged, really, to to, mm. to be working in an institution that supports that sort of work? It's, yeah. yeah, it's great. And particularly in yeah. the face of global warming, we really need to be doing this work. Yeah, and that's happening. Yeah, and that. Yeah, and that pre and post bushfire, mm. you know, going in and getting things before before the bushfire comes through, being part of that recovery afterwards and making sure that that stuff stuff is all in seed banks or however it needs to be protected is it's yeah it's unbelievably important work. Yeah, I think Tim Tim Entwistle was looking to um, give that work at the RBGV a, um, a, a, a a context a brand. I think he's looking. Mm. It, it hasn't got traction just yet, but um, it, increasingly it's um, native native flora. I should I, I've opened my mouth before. <laughs> 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 um, it, it's called the Plant Rescue and Care Centre. Nice. The botanical yeah. gardens are potentially plant rescues and care centres. Yeah. Um, you know that's not an official t- term, but but that's the direction that, that Tim. Would like to see some of our horticultural and and, and botany go into great plant yeah. rescue care. Yeah, yeah, it's almost awesome. like yeah, a bit like a zoo, but a zoo for yeah, a zoo yeah. for plants, happy breeding for plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what yeah. it is. Great, that's cool. This is the Three CR Garden Show. You have been listening to Virginia Hayward, Chloe Foster, Tex Moon, and John Arnott. Next week you'll be listening to AB with. Who is she with? Jane Tonkin and Penny Woodward. So I hope you'll all come and listen to us next week as it will be another very exciting show. Thank you for listening.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.